Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Mike Awesome, general partner of M25. M25 is an early-stage venture capital fund based in Chicago, investing solely in companies headquartered in the Midwest. We started our conversation discussing what movie got him intrigued by venture capital, what's misunderstood about investing in the Midwest and the consumer landscape in the region, his learnings since publishing M25 Diversity Report, and how he thinks about making venture capital a lot more inclusive. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks so much for being here. So I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship and how did you get involved in venture capital? Yeah, um, great question. I mean, I think I think there's probably something always inherently about me that was interested in entrepreneurship. I uh, think back to like grade school days, I was making like jewelry out of beads and selling them to my classmates. I was actually, uh, at one point in elementary school, I realized now that I, what I'd done is I'd raised a fund of the neighborhood kids. My pitch was like, hey, like our allowance doesn't stack up too much, but hey, if we pull it together, and by pull together, it was give it to me and I'll bury it in my backyard under the slide. And um, uh, the parents found out and that did not last very long. But long way of saying, I think I've always been interested in, in entrepreneurship or I guess finance, if that's how you want to think about it. And But projecting forward to my adult life, there's actually the movie Wedding Crashers that introduced me to venture capital. I don't know if you remember that scene, but they get, like those guys are trying to con their way into some politician's family. And the uh, con they're playing is their VCs that invested in uh, maple syrup. And uh, it was uh, totally hilarious, but it definitely, something clicked in my brain at that moment. Like, what is venture capital? And sounds real, sounds sounds pretty cool. The other part of your question was, how did I get into venture capital? And that more in, in my college days, I I went to Purdue University, actually studied, studied liberal arts at Purdue, which surprises a lot of people because Purdue's uh, really renowned for its STEM degrees and talent and um, rightfully so, but I, I had an interest in, I knew I was interested in business, but was really more interested on, frankly, how did companies build almost like interpersonal level relationships with their customers? And so um, I majored in something called public relations and rhetorical advocacy, which they no longer offer because most people don't know what it means. <laughs> but for me, it was trying to, a curriculum that kind of maybe understand why, you know, Apple and iOS had such a hold over people and Blue text versus green text was almost a war you wanted to fight more than one for your family member. And so while I was at Purdue, I started an incubator called The Anvil. That was the largest student-run incubator in the country at the time I left. And uh, The Anvil, to this date, has launched the first Purdue company to go to White Combinator and several companies to raise venture capital and even have uh, meaningful large acquisitions. So um, that's really how I kind of entered into VC was really through kind of the operator, operator support incubation side. And then in 2016, we launched M25 with my partner, Victor. That's awesome. That's, that, that's amazing. How did you lead to found M25? And, and how did you think about you know, your thesis? Obviously, on the Apple front, like, it's very consumer, obviously a consumer company. But were you also just thinking innovation just generally, both on like the B2C side and B2B? Or were there particular areas 
that really attracted you within software. How are you thinking about where you wanted to spend your time as well? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, so after the Anvil, um, I actually worked at a, a startup in the nanotech space, which is incredibly ironic because, like I said, my degree is in liberal arts. And my first year at undergrad, I was assembling 80 micron thick supercapacitors in a bioclean room thinner than a human hair, right? And so that was super interesting. And after that company, the Purdue Research Foundation hired me as a director to um, really do primarily one of two things. Uh, the 80% of my time was working with portfolio companies of, of the university and through kind of the Purdue Nexus, helping them find C-suite talent, raise capital, um, negotiate partnerships, et cetera. And about 20% of my time was helping to market unlicensed intellectual property coming out of the, the research at Purdue. And so um, when I met my partner, Victor, is actually through a due diligence purpose, he had started to put together kind of an angel portfolio with call it, call it Fund Zero, um, if you will, for what became M25. Um, with this thesis around investing in Midwestern tech companies. And I had, at this point, established myself as a either formal or informal advisor to a significant amount of companies, particularly in Indiana, but even outside of Indiana. And really, we kind of hit it off once we got to know each other about um, specific companies. We both got a lot of energy around, but also this thesis around the Midwest as a region and the opportunity it has. And really, the thesis behind that, I think, largely comes to what we saw as kind of a problem and opportunity for the region. The Midwest region from an economy standpoint, it's, it's massive. It's huge. Like Illinois alone has like, I think 30 something, 4,500 companies. But if you take in the whole region, it's, it's a significant economy. Where it's lacking and where this, I think, challenge as opportunity comes has been historically more in this kind of density of the region. So if you like try to compare the Midwest to the Bay Area, for example, it's like confusing, first of all. And secondly, it just doesn't make as much sense because from, from a density perspective, right, you're you're going from Palo Alto to Mountain View or you're going from Minneapolis to Kansas City and trying to connect those dots and make that system work and that synergies work. And so we really believe that if we're able to sit at the center of that and be sort of a conduit within the region as well as uh, coastal partners coming into the region, um, we could really help create some sort of virtual density type infrastructure and, you know, in a world where you can build a company anywhere, really help um, shine a light on some really promising talent um, and entrepreneurs uh, in the Midwest region where we have our kind of local advantage. What do you mean by virtual density? It reminds me just as you think about, you know, concentration. And of course, this is all pre-COVID. COVID has changed a lot of things, I'd imagine, when it comes to this. But when I would have on investors on the show pre-COVID, they would say it's fine that are you know software-oriented ones, not so much you know on the consumer product side of things, but like the software-oriented ones would say it's fine to start a company anywhere. But when it comes to talent and you know you actually need to scale and, and engineers, there has to be some type of plan to relocate to you know, a San Francisco or maybe even a New York where you have a lot more engineers, there's a lot more identity engineers, or open up like a second location in one of those two cities. How do you think about, you know, when you think about M25 and maybe the opportunity in the Midwest side, and as well, maybe pre-COVID as you, cause since obviously you started your fund well before uh, COVID was, we all knew what, what COVID was, but then also how how's that changed as well during COVID when you think about this virtual density question? If you call out what, some of the reasons why I think people have called out call it the Bay Area, is a, is a phenomenal place to build a tech company, right? There's a lot of like a kind of institutional knowledge, right? There's a lot of, you know, you can kind of throw a rock and hit three different venture-backed entrepreneurs. You can, there's a lot of talent working at these companies, right? And so I think when you think of virtual density, we think about like, well, okay, so that's not true in Toledo. That's not true in Columbus. That's not true in, as true in, in Minneapolis or even 
as true in Chicago, right? But if you're able to kind of create that infrastructure, one example of how we've done it is through our own kind of portfolio network um, through our companies, right? Where we're proactively connecting, you know, now there's over 180 venture-backed founders, right, that are easily able to touch each other where they're not limited to kind of their local region as, as much as they were, but more have access to this founder network where um, there's not just the commonality that they're founders, but they have, um, they know they're non-competitive because they're all in our portfolio and they know that um, they're all venture-backed and, and at least some point on the same journey. Um, if you think about like talent or, or customers, the same, same thing like for our summit that we do once here in Chicago, we're bringing hundreds of VCs to Chicago um, and dozens of our portfolio companies. At one point it was twice a year, now it's once a year, but we've replaced that second one with a, a virtual version of that event to create kind of this flywheel of conversations and potential network that creates some of this density. And then similarly, we have more of like online versions like MidwestStartups.com, which we use to elevate voices, um, elevate thought leadership, showcase companies. I think more interestingly on the talent side, we have a, a talent repository where anyone with experience or interested in working with a venture-backed startup company headquartered broadly in the Midwest region, whether they're here now or would be willing to relocate to the Midwest, um, can create a, a, a single profile that our portfolio companies can get exposed to and vice versa for openings in the region. And, you know, we're talking about a growing proprietary repository of talent that I think helps kind of with that density question. So when I talk about virtual density, it's bits and pieces, I think, of trying to solve some of these points around talent, access to capital, and access to like kind of institutional knowledge as well from like founder communities. What has been your learning since since it seems like this has also been like a pretty like grassroots initiative you've had to build from scratch since the Midwest is still maybe like more of like a developing region compared to like the Bay Area, which is more maybe blue chip? Yeah, no, I mean, I think like, and I think some important context too, right? It's like not necessarily to like try to make the Midwest the next Silicon Valley or try to, you know, say that the Midwest is competing with the Silicon Valley. It's more about understanding what was, what's been a gap historically and what therefore becomes an opportunity, we believe, for a region that um, is undercapitalized to the point that of, of the opportunity that is here. I think as far as the learnings go, I mean, first, I think it's, it's interesting to see how much talent is here and how many people are interested in, in building companies in the Midwest. Um, the evolution of the Midwest region is is interesting to watch. Chicago alone, I think it was over 10 unicorns last year. And if you think about where the Midwest, the Midwest as a region was 10 years ago, 10 unicorns across the region probably would have been a massive story, right? So this piece around not just like this infrastructure that M25 is one of probably several firms and groups trying to solve, um, but also this increase of maturity within the region, development within the region, we're, we're having to coach people less and less about the realities of what it means to, to be a venture-backed business and how to actually build a venture-backed company than, you know, investors like us would have been, you know, five, ten years ago. So I think there's, you know, a promising story around the developing, the development of the region and, and its entrepreneurs and, and talent here. What we saw in, during COVID and now, quote-unquote, post-COVID, is the response from our coastal peers really recognizing the opportunity here in a way that was really, I think, just accelerating an existing trend because of the virtual environment we were in. I'd love to kind of more better understand a bit about your strategy and why you're you know, bullish about consumer. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. And yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. I would say that there's definitely been a broad softening around consumer brands um, amongst venture. And I think you know, probably rightfully so especially given how some of these brands were priced and valued and, and, and capitalized in the late stages. And, you know, M25 as well, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, say that our view on consumer broadly 
um, our, our, our likely next cohort of consumer companies is probably going to be more e-commerce infrastructure, marketplaces, like consumer brands may, we, we're, we're probably a little bit softer there as well. But that said, I mean, we are still looking and in, in, in investing. And I think for us, like like many investors, we just kind of know the, the adage and the reality that contrarian thinking often leads to the, the best return potential. And where others are afraid to invest, it's it can lead to really good ROI. I think another thing I'd point out specifically for, for us and thinking about consumer brands is the stage and entry point at which we invest. We have, and frankly, like valuation discipline. Like we've always historically been very, um, you know, not overly valuation strict, but like valuation sensitive, valuation discipline in a world, especially in the last year or two, where I think a lot of investors would say for pre-seed or seed that it's not really worth negotiating anything under than a $10 million valuation. The, the reality is that can be quite different on the outcome. If, if it's a, you know, a few million dollars difference in valuation can lead to a two or three X difference in what a 10 X could be a 30 X right? or, or a three X could be 10 X. Right. So I think part of that understanding that we're super early, we're not trying to price uh, CPG or consumer brands in the same way we're looking to value uh, B2B SaaS businesses. Um, and, and our consistency and kind of how we try to value these things appropriately. Um, these are all important in, in how, how, we've, how we've looked at it. What are kind of your checklists or what makes a consumer brand interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, first and foremost, the founders have to be phenomenal storytellers, regardless of the type of investment or consumer or B2B, that founders are paramount. But in this case, especially, like, founders need to be phenomenal storytellers because this is going to translate across, like, their ability to build a brand and, like, have that kind of, you know, go above the line, have that unfair advantage um, to really speak to customers and attract customers without um, some sort of performance marketing. I would say truly differentiated product and potential for serious brand equity. If you think about, um, uh, I guess, with my public relations hat on, like, is there something within this around that's going to create an inherent sense of goodwill with the consumer? Or is there something that gives this brand some sort of like unfair positioning or nobility or authority? Is there something here that goes just beyond, frankly, um, like the product and what it's doing and more about the mission and values and who this brand is and how it's positioned in the minds of its customers? Um, that's going to give it some sort of unfair advantage beyond, you know, performance marketing paid, paid ads that there we have to believe there's some sort of story to be told there. You know, on the on kind of the more boring side, like, you know, do they have a supply chain strategy? Do they have a supply chain advantage again? And that lead that also leads more to capital efficiency. Um, and, uh, you know, are there, do their unit economics actually make sense? Um, are they compelling? I know you also recently released a diversity report. I would love to know the origin of, of thinking about when you released this report and, you know, some of the goals that you had in, in doing so. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, we, um, just this spring, we released this report and really, you know, diversity has always been a strong value at M25, where, where you, if you look at our, our team, we're, we're one of the most diverse uh, VC groups out there. But, you know, especially um, in 2020 with the, the murder of George Floyd and a lot of the public conversation, I, I personally started doing a lot of writing um, publicly on, on the matter, but also we decided to look as a firm and, and try to think about like, hey, is there something proactive we can do and be more uh, leaders in this space rather than um, trying to participate and just kind of watch. And so, um, we put together a pledge in 2020, and part of that pledge, amongst other things, was was really around like trying to really 
put our money where their mouth was and around accountability and transparency. And we did a lot of work um, since then and, and previously had been tracking some of this data, but really put a concerted effort to emphasize tracking um, the data required to put out the report that we did. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it came about. And we're really proud to, to actually um, deliver the mail on that and, and publish this report, which we did earlier this year. So Mike, what were some of your learnings from your diversity report? Yeah, so learned a lot. Learned that it's really hard to do this and do it effectively. We have to, you know, really kind of make sure our processes are in place to actually get meaningful data. And we learned that we're doing great at some things and we still have some some places to improve. I'm glad to say that we're beating kind of the VC market on almost every measure for diversity, but that's frankly a low bar. Probably the stat that I'm most excited about is learning that um, almost half, I think the is exactly like 46% of all the capital we've deployed to date has gone into what we defined as underrepresented founders, which included companies founded, companies with a black, Latinx, and or female founder. That's awesome. And that's also, I mean, really great that obviously you are one of the most diverse funds in the world in venture capital, especially considering that that, that venture capital is not very diverse overall. At a macro level, like what you know needs to be done in your view or maybe what other funds um, could be done since I know like listeners we, we definitely have other VCs that, that that listen to the show but that could be done in order for to ensure you know more diversity within VC I mean especially more diversity in terms of the actual number of founders that are being backed whether it's uh, people of color women what in your mind like would you like to be seen done that you think could generate another point of uh, impact yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, outside of M25, I, I sit on the board for um, Black VC, which, you know, focuses primarily on uh, serving and growing the number and furthering the number of Black investors um, in venture capital. But I think specifically, like more broadly within tech, and especially with, with diverse founders getting funded, one thing I point to is just the importance of employees at tech companies being diverse. Like, if you, if you look at the most founders that get funded, Many of them either co-founded or at least worked at a tech company prior. Um, that, I mean, that, that kind of early tech company experience is really um, kind of valued as part of that evaluation of a founder's understanding and, and potential to actually execute on being a startup founder. Unfortunately, like the, that, is, that still is not as diverse as it could be. And so I think like as VCs, it's an opportunity for us to continue to encourage our companies to, to value diversity and, and factor that in. And uh, I think that's why organizations like Color Stack, which is an organization I love to support and talk about um, that focuses on um, attracting and retaining computer science uh, students uh, that are diverse and helping them find roles in tech companies after graduation are so important. Um, but yeah, I, I point to things like how can we get, how can we ensure that um, these this wave of tech companies are, are hiring um, diverse talent and, and promoting effectively? And I think on the venture front, I think, you know, we talk a lot about um, hiring diverse talent, um, but I think it's important that we denote like the role types that we're hiring into as well. Um, you know, when a, when a when an employee works for you, are they going to you know do the type of work and build the type of resume and attribution to where you'd want to promote them into a senior role internally, or or they'd have the resume to go out if you're not promoting internally to, to another firm and and grow in, in an investing career, right? And I think. Um, you know, that's kind of like a, a second order function to not just hiring diverse talent, but hiring them into the right roles and, and making sure they're given the right opportunities once once in, in the venture capital industry. That makes a lot of sense and I and I appreciate you sharing because 
what we've also you know talked about in the show too is how, which of course is also true to make big change. It's it also trickles down on the VC side of things where like LPs are investing in more you know funds that are founded by you know people who happen to be people of color or you know women, and that trickles down to you know having more diverse founders being funded. I love also though your take too, where it's sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum and saying how can we get more diverse people in roles at companies on the talent side because usually when you're maybe sourcing about what the best company is what VCs like to do is build relationships with like who like the first hires are or the talent behind it like that's usually then what kind of becomes interesting to VCs in terms of actually who to fund at, at their next go around i really appreciate that that's awesome you also created a board game called unicorn to the moon would love to kind of Learn more of why you decided to create a board game and like the purpose and overall how it like kind of came together. Yeah, well, I mean, simply put, I have way too much time and really needed a really expensive hobby. No, <laughs> I mean, no, in all seriousness, I love board games. Actually, um, board games are kind of a way of life at M25. I think they actually, the Chicago Sun-Times at one point wrote an article about Victor and his love for Catan that we're pretty serious about board games here. But uh, really, really one, one morning I woke up and couldn't shake this thought about a board game around like kind of the mechanics around venture capital. Um, I really think that, you know, venture capital is very serious, but at the same time, there's a lot of things about it that are, I think, could be viewed with a lighter perspective. I mean, just the way decisions are made occasionally um, that we've seen companies get funded. We all know the stories about so-and-so talk to so-and-so and the next thing you know that company raised a hundred million dollar seed or whatever it is right and I thought like as an as an operator in this space like really thinking about you know building a fund building a portfolio investing in companies winning deals all this stuff had a lot of potential and it is really exciting it's really fun it's why it's one of the best jobs I could ever imagine having but I thought it had a lot of potential for a game and at first my idea was just to kind of make it for myself and be like pat myself on the back and be happy and then I realized that it could have the potential to serve a greater cause by donating the majority of the profits to actually charities just like ColorStack. ColorStack is one of the beneficiary charities. The others include groups like BlackVC and LatinxVC and a couple others um, all, all serving diversity and inclusion um, in venture capital and or intertech and startups. But yeah, it's a, it's a one to four player game. It's super fun. You basically create a strategy, you invest in companies, you play action cards that let you hire basketball celebrities like Laron Dames, who is a flop-prone basketball superstar who may or may not make a good film about one of your companies. And depending on your dice roll, the company either flops and your company gets tanked or the, comp- the movie goes off and your company goes off as well. And then you harvest, you make decisions on cashing out, doubling down, trying to you know launch these companies into unicorns all the way to the moon, which uh, is obviously a massive return for your fund. And it's a great way, especially for founders to troll their investors if they want to beat them at their own game. Um, but really, the goal is to raise money for these, these organizations, put something out in the world that's really fun and enjoyable, and also so that people don't have to watch Wedding, wedding Crashers to be exposed to VC. You could uh, play this with your kids. Um, I'm hoping I'm hoping high schoolers and undergrads all across the country get a chance to, to get exposed to, to a really interesting aspect of the world that uh, many communities don't get exposure to candidly in a fun way. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to buy it. How are you thinking about you know the current market today? Because you know we've seen like 
quite a few headlines of especially like like Silicon Valley uh, based companies and you know having down rounds and you know especially companies where maybe haven't produced much revenue but have you know heavy burn not being able to fundraise or having raised down round or, or bridge round. What's been the perspective? I mean, what's it been like? Because some of these companies, I, I feel like in the Bay Area and stuff like that, are pretty crazy valuations. Not that you can't get crazy valuations in the Midwest, but just more so prone to happen on the on the coast. What's been the market like currently in the Midwest um, during like this particular point in time? Yeah, I think the market in the Midwest has been you know exposed to the same realities as as the broader market, right? I think twenty twenty one can only be described as a what was a remarkable year. For, uh, from evaluations and funding standpoint. And I think what we're experiencing now is, if anything, uh, at least a, a path back to, to normalcy. And so to your point, companies that raised at like excessive valuation multiples where revenue was no, in no way going to defend a type of valuation, you are going to have a hard time defending that and, and could potentially find themselves um, raising down or, or flat rounds if unable to grow into evaluation. Like that, I think that's probably more around kind of the late stage, right? I don't think that's as big of a problem generally for companies like that were seeded or raised a Series A generally in the in the last twelve months. But but for the Midwest, I mean, what you know, two sides of this coin. Valuations here generally have been more modest. We do get um, great valuations here. Like there are massive valuations that do occur here. Um, but generally, valuations are a little bit less of a premium. We're not as frequently seeing these 100x, 200x revenue multiples. We're seeing 40, 50, 60x revenue multiples uh, at a regular pop, but um, that's a lot different, right? And a lot of these companies, frankly, inherently have good business fundamentals. Midwestern companies are known for generally being more capital efficient from a mindset and, and how, how they grow their business. And so, you know, I'm optimistic about the companies here that, you know, have have been well capitalized, do still have good business fundamentals, and even if they've raised at a premium, like we'll be more likely to be able to grow into that and and move forward. But you know, the Midwest is in no way totally insulated by any means. Um, but yeah, the market as a whole, I think, is it's going to be an interesting time for sure. Yeah, no, for sure, and I appreciate those thoughts around the Midwest. Um, what is one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? I read E Boys back in the day, and that was, uh, I believe that was the title. It was about the, you know, benchmark early days. And at the time, I, it was ridiculous. I was, uh, I was just post-wedding crashers, effectively, <laughs> in my uh, venture capital uh, sophistication. But I thought it was fascinating and super interesting and thought Bill Gurley was, like, the coolest human ever. Um, and not to say I don't still. Personally, Accidental Superpower, or The Accidental Superpower, I believe. I found it just totally fascinating. And if you if you like kind of a guns, germs, and steel type of read, it's like that, but um, a little bit more future-looking, forward-looking, and, and just kind of a really interesting perspective on like kind of how our nation has evolved, how the world has evolved, how economies have evolved, and how, you, how human nature has evolved. Just kind of a cool perspective. That's awesome. I'm so excited to add these to our uh to our book list. Really, really appreciate you you sharing your thoughts on them. A final question to you is maybe what's one piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs that are currently building? My advice uh, to entrepreneurs that are currently building is get back to the basics. Don't look at 2021 comps and trick yourself into thinking that like you can still go out and, and do that. Yeah, it's going to be sort of a winter in that perspective. And um, it doesn't mean there isn't a great opportunity to build a great company. 
In fact, I think there's going to be a phenomenal flight to quality that's going to be make investing this year and in the in the years to come, like really exciting. But yeah, like get back to the, the fundamentals, make sure you're creating real value. And on that note, honor the fact that in the, in the earliest days, your job is really to hack value, not to hack growth. Hacking value has to precede hacking growth or else growth, hacking growth won't work and you'll just be confused and waste a bunch of time. So yeah, build, build something of real value and make sure you fully hack value at this stage in the early stage. That's awesome. Are you on fund two, three, one? Which fund are you on currently for uh, M25? If you include the uh, alpha angel portfolio type fund that I alluded, I mentioned that Victor uh, was investing out of when we met, we are currently on fund three. Currently on fund three. Fund three. Okay, great. Okay. How much is currently fund three in terms of assets under management? Fund three is a $32 million fund. So what is like the goal ultimately for M25 because there's now been, you know, obviously we've as, you know, strength builds on strength and as, you know, VCs return capital and raise their new fund, they're usually raising bigger and larger and larger funds. And we've seen that happen definitely over the last 10 years, right? But there's also been like another strategy that's kind of evolving where VCs are actually then kind of rejecting capital and want to stay at their current size. And so I guess my question for you, Mike, is the goal of M25 to be like always be kind of like a pre-season investor where you're in early, the fund will never kind of cross me, but like a hundred million dollar threshold per se, or is it to, you know, maybe own more of the stack and raise each time larger and larger and larger amounts, maybe dip your toes into maybe series A's and series B's? No, that's a great question. I think for us, our first goal was to be the best pre-seed fund in the Midwest. And our next goal is just be top, excuse me, top tier pre-seed seed fund, period is recognized as being best in class at, at what we do at this stage. And I think that's a focus that Victor and I are fully aligned on and, and really excited about our opportunity for. We really like playing at this stage and we feel like we're building an expertise and special, specialization here that's really valuable. Of course, um, there's opportunity to continue to you know take advantage of a parada and grow and follow on deeper and deeper in, into late stage rounds. I think for us, we're probably more of that variety that we'd really like to. And you can still have a you know we can still grow from here from a fund size perspective for sure, and still focus on pre seed to seed. But I think for us, there there is a point where we're going to ask ourselves: Do we really want to have this much exposure this late, or is there a different vehicle that we may put together to take advantage of that prorata and follow on, or do we want to bring on, like, grow the team and grow the expertise to, to go to those later stages more intentionally? But that's TBD, and I would say our, our current sentiment is probably more to be focused on what we're good at and trying to be the best at that. Mike, thanks so much for your time. This was so much fun. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me. This was a blast. I really enjoyed it. And there you have it. It was so great having Mike on the show. Thanks again for coming on, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.